Book One, Chapter One of Their Mutual Child by P. G. Woodhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Their Mutual Child by P. G. Woodhouse. Book One, Chapter One. A pawn of fate. Mrs. Laura Delane Porter dismissed the hireling who had brought her automobile round from the garage and seated herself at the wheel. It was her habit to refresh her mind and improve her health by a daily drive between the hours of two and four in the afternoon. The world knows little of its greatest women, and it is possible that Mrs. Porter's name is not familiar to you. If this is the case, I am pained but not surprised. It happens only too often that the uplifter of the public mind is balked by a disinclination on the part of the public mind to meet him or her halfway. The uplifter does his share, he produces the uplifting book. But the public, instead of standing still to be uplifted, wanders off to browse on coloured supplements and magazine stories. If you are ignorant of Laura Delane Porter's books, that is your affair. Perhaps you are more to be pitied than censured. Nature probably gave you the wrong shape of forehead. Mrs. Porter herself would have put it down to some atavistic tendency or prenatal influence. She put most things down to that. She blamed nearly all the defects of the modern world, from weak intellects to ingraying toenails, on long-dead ladies and gentlemen who, safe in the family vault, imagined that they had established their alibi. She subpoenaed grandfathers and even great-grandfathers to give evidence to show that the reason twentieth-century Willie squinted, or had spent his winters in Arizona, was their own shocking health, way back in the days beyond recall. Mrs. Porter's mind worked backward and forward. She had one eye on the past and the other on the future. If she was strong on heredity, she was stronger on the future of the race. Most of her published works dealt with this subject. A careful perusal of them would have enabled the rising generation to select its ideal wife or husband with perfect ease and in the event of heaven blessing the union her little volume entitled the hygienic care of the baby which was all about germs and how to avoid them would have ensured the continuance of the direct succession unfortunately the rising generation did not seem disposed to a careful perusal of anything except the baseball scores and the beauty hints in the sunday papers and Mrs. Porter's public was small. In fact, her only real disciple, as she sometimes told herself in her rare moods of discouragement, was her niece, Ruth Bannister, daughter of John Bannister, the millionaire. It was not so long ago, she reflected with pride, that she had induced Ruth to refuse to marry Basil Milbank, a considerable feat, he being a young man of remarkable personal attractions, and a great match in every way. Mrs. Porter's objection to him was that his father had died, believing to the last that he was a teapot. There is nothing evil or degrading in believing oneself a teapot, but it argues a certain inaccuracy of the thought processes, and Mrs. Porter had used all her influence with Ruth to make her reject Basil. It was her success that first showed her how great that influence was. She had come now to look on Ruth's destiny as something for which she was personally responsible, a fact which was noted and resented by others 
in particular Ruth's brother Bailey, who regarded his aunt with a dislike and suspicion akin to that which a stray dog feels towards the boy who saunters towards him with a tin can in his hand. To Bailey his strong-minded relative was a perpetual menace, a sort of perambulating yellow peril, and the fact that she often alluded to him as a worm consolidated his distaste for her. Mrs. Porter released the clutch and set out on her drive. She rarely had a settled route for these outings of hers, preferring to zigzag about New York, livening up the great city at random. She always drove herself, and, having, like a good suffragist, a contempt for male prohibitions, took an honest pleasure in exceeding a man-made speed-limit. One hesitates to apply the term joy-rider to so eminent a leader of contemporary thought as the authoress of The Dawn of Better Things, Principles of Selection, and what of tomorrow? But candour compels the admission that she was a somewhat reckless driver. Perhaps it was due to some atavistic tendency. One of her ancestors may have been a Roman charioteer, or a coach-racing maniac of the Regency days. At any rate, after a hard morning's work on her new book, she felt that her mind needed cooling, and found that the rush of air against her face effected this satisfactorily. The greater the rush, the quicker the cooling. However, as the alert inhabitants of Manhattan Island, a hardy race, trained from infancy to dodge taxicabs and ambulance wagons, had always removed themselves from her path with their usual agility, she had never yet had an accident. But then she had never yet met George Pennicut, and George, pawn of fate, was even now waiting round the corner to upset her record. George, man of work to Kirk Winfield, one of the youngest and least efficient of New York's artist colony, was English. He had been in America for some little time, but not long enough to accustom his rather unreceptive mind to the fact that, whereas in his native land vehicles kept to the left, in the country of his adoption they kept to the right. And it was still his boneheaded practice when stepping off the sidewalk to keep a wary lookout in precisely the wrong direction. The only problem with regard to such a man is who will get him first. Fate had decided that it should be Laura Delane Porter. Today, Mrs. Porter, having circled the park in rapid time, turned her car down Central Park West. She was feeling much refreshed by the pleasant air. She was conscious of a glow of benevolence towards her species, not excluding even the young couple she had almost reduced to mincemeat in the neighbourhood of 97th Street. They had annoyed her extremely by the time of their meeting, by occupying to the last possible moment a part of the road which she wanted herself. On reaching 61st Street, she found her way blocked by a lumbering delivery wagon. She followed it slowly for a while, then, growing tired of being merely a unit in a procession, tugged at the steering wheel and turned to the right. George Pennicut, his anxious eyes raking the middle distance, as usual in the wrong direction, had just stepped off the curb. He received the automobile in the small of the back, uttering a yell of surprise and dismay, performed a few improvised Texas Tommy steps, and fell in a heap. In a situation which might have stimulated another to fervid speech, George Pennicut contented himself with saying, Goo! He was a man of few words. Mrs. Porter stopped the car, 
from all points of the compass citizens began to assemble many swallowing their chewing gum in their excitement one a devout believer in the inscrutable ways of providence told a friend as he ran that only two minutes before he had almost robbed himself of this spectacle by going to a moving picture palace mrs porter was annoyed she had never run over anything before except a few chickens and she regarded the incident as a blot on her escutcheon she was incensed with this idiot who had flung himself before her car not reflecting in her heat that he probably had a prenatal tendency to this sort of thing inherited from some ancestor who had played last across in front of handsome cabs in the streets of london she bent over george and passed experienced hands over his portly form for this remarkable woman was as competent at first aid as at anything else the citizens gathered silently round in a circle it was your fault she said to her victim severely i accept no liability whatever i did not run into you you ran into me i have a jolly good mind to have you arrested for attempted suicide this aspect of the affair had not struck mr pennicut presented to him in these simple words it checked the recriminatory speech which his mind having recovered to some extent from the first shock of the meeting he had intended to deliver he swallowed his words awed he felt dazed and helpless mrs porter had that effect upon men some more citizens arrived no bones broken reported mrs porter concluding her examination you are exceedingly fortunate you have a few bruises and one knee is slightly wrenched nothing to signify more frightened than hurt where do you live there said george meekly where them studios number ninety yes ma'am george's voice was that of a crushed worm are you an artist no ma'am i'm mr winfield's man whose mr winfield's ma'am is he in yes ma'am i'll fetch him and if the policeman comes along wants to know why you're lying there mind you tell him the truth that you ran into me yes ma'am very well don't forget no ma'am she crossed the street and rang the bell over which was a card bearing the name kirk winfield mr pennicut watched her in silence mrs porter pressed the button a second time somebody came at a leisurely pace down the passage whistling cheerfully the door opened it did not often happen to laura delane porter to feel insignificant least of all in the presence of the opposite sex she had well-defined views upon man yet in the interval which elapsed between the opening of the door and her first words a certain sensation of smallness overcame her the man who had opened the door was not judged by any standard of regularity of features handsome he had a rather boyish face pleasant eyes set wide apart and a friendly mouth he was rather an outsize in young men and as he stood there he seemed to fill the doorway it was this sense of bigness that he conveyed his cleanness his magnificent fitness that for the moment overcame mrs porter physical fitness was her gospel she stared at him in silent appreciation to the young man however her forceful gaze did not convey this quality she seemed to him to be looking as if she had caught him in the act of endeavouring to snatch her purse he had been thrown a little off his balance by the encounter resource in moments of crisis is largely a matter of preparedness and a man 
who, having opened his door in the expectation of seeing a ginger-haired, bow-legged, grinning George Pennicut, is confronted by a masterful woman with eyes like gimlets, may be excused for not guessing that her piercing stare is an expression of admiration and respect. Mrs. Porter broke the silence. It was ever her way to come swiftly to the matter in hand. Mr. Kirk Winfield? Yes. Have you in your employment a red-haired, congenital idiot who ambles about New York in an absent-minded way as if he were on a desert island? The man I refer to is a short, stout Englishman, clean-shaven, dressed in black. That sounds like George Pennicut. I have no doubt that that is his name. I did not inquire. It did not interest me. My name is Mrs. Laura Delane Porter. This man of yours has just run into my automobile. I beg your pardon? I cannot put it more lucidly. I was driving along the street when this weak-minded person flung himself in front of my car. He is out there now. Kindly come and help him in. Is he hurt? More frightened than hurt, I have examined him. His left knee appears to be slightly wrenched. Kirk Winfield passed a hand over his left forehead and followed her. Like George, he found Mrs. Porter a trifle overwhelming. Out in the street, George Pennicut, now the centre of a quite substantial section of the four million, was causing a granite-faced policeman to think that the age of miracles had returned, by informing him that the accident had been his fault and no others. He greeted the relief party with a wan grin. "'Just broke my leg, sir,' he announced to Kirk. "'You have done nothing of the sort,' said Mrs. Porter. "'You have wrenched your knee very slightly. "'Have you explained to the policeman that it was entirely your fault?' "'Yes, ma'am.' "'That's right. Always speak the truth.' "'Yes, ma'am.' "'Mr. Winfield will help you indoors.' "'Thank you, ma'am.' She turned to Kirk. "'Now, Mr. Winfield!' Kirk bent over the victim, gripped him, and lifted him like a baby. "'He's got his,' observed one interested spectator. "'I should worry,' agreed another. "'All broken up.' "'Nothing of the kind,' said Mrs. Porter severely. "'The man is hardly hurt at all. "'Be more accurate in your remarks.' She eyed the speaker sternly. He wilted. "'Yes, ma'am,' he mumbled sheepishly. The policeman, with that lion-like courage which makes the New York constabulary what it is, endeavoured to assert himself at this point. "'Hey!' he boomed. Mrs. Porter turned her gaze upon him, her cold, steely gaze. "'I beg your pardon?' "'This won't do, ma'am. I have a report to make. How did this happen?' "'You have already been informed. The man ran into my automobile. But I shall not charge him.' She turned and followed Kirk. "'But say!' The policeman's voice was now almost plaintive. Mrs. Porter ignored him and disappeared into the house. The policeman— having gulped several times in a disconsolate way, relieved his feelings by dispersing the crowd with well-directed prods of his locust-stick. A small boy who lingered, squeezing the automobile's hooter, in a sort of trance, he kicked. The boy vanished. The crowd melted. The policeman walked slowly toward Ninth Avenue. Peace reigned in the street. "'Put him to bed,' said Mrs. Porter, as Kirk laid his burden on a couch in the studio. You seem exceedingly muscular, Mr. Winfield. I noticed that you carried him without an effort. He is a stout man, too. Grossly out of condition, like ninety-nine per cent of men to-day. I'm not so young as I was, ma'am, protested George. When I was in the army, I was a fine figure of a man. 
the more shame to you that you have allowed yourself to deteriorate commented mrs porter beer a grateful smile irradiated george's face thank you ma'am it's very kind of you ma'am i don't mind if i do the man appears to be a perfect imbecile said mrs porter turning abruptly to kirk i ask him if he attributes his physical decay to beer and he babbles i think he thought you were offering him a drink suggested kirk as a matter of fact little brandy wouldn't hurt him after the shock he has had on no account the worst thing possible this isn't your lucky day george said kirk well i guess i'll phone to the doctor quite unnecessary i beg your pardon entirely unnecessary i have made an examination there is practically nothing the matter with the man put him to bed and let him sponge his knee with warm water are you a doctor mrs porter i have studied first aid well i think if you don't mind i should like to have your opinion confirmed this was rank mutiny mrs porter stared haughtily at kirk he met her gaze with determination as you please she snapped thank you said kirk i don't want to take any risks with george i couldn't afford to lose him there aren't any more like him they've mislaid the pattern he went to the telephone mrs porter watched him narrowly she was more than ever impressed by the perfection of his physique she appraised his voice as he spoke to the doctor it gave evidence of excellent lungs he was a wonderfully perfect physical specimen an idea concerning this young man came into her mind startling as all great ideas are at birth the older it grew the more she approved of it she decided to put a few questions to him she had a habit of questioning people and it never occurred to her that they might resent it if it had occurred to her she would have done it just the same she was like that mr winfield yes i should like to ask you a few questions this woman delighted kirk please do he said mrs porter scanned him closely you are an extraordinarily healthy man to all appearances have you ever suffered from bad health measles immaterial very unpleasant though nothing else mumps unimportant not to me i look like a watermelon nothing besides no serious illnesses none what is your age twenty-five are your parents living no were they healthy fit as fiddles and your grandparents perfect bearcats i remember my grandfather at the age of about a hundred or something like that spanking me for breaking his pipe i thought it was a steam hammer he was a wonderfully muscular old gentleman excellent by the way said kirk casually my life is insured very sensible there has been no serious illness in your family at all then as far as you know i could hunt up the records if you like but i don't think so consumption no cancer no as far as you're aware nothing very satisfactory i'm glad you're pleased are you married good lord no at your age you should be with your magnificent physique and remarkable record of health it is your duty to the future of the race to marry i'm not sure i've been worrying much about the future of the race no man does it's the crying evil of the day men's selfish absorption in the present their utter lack of a sense of duty with regard to the future have you read my dawn of better things i'm afraid i read very few novels it is not a novel it is a treatise on the need for implanting a sense of personal duty to the future of the race in the modern young man it sounds a crackerjack i must get it i will send you a copy at the same time i will send you my principles of selection and what of tomorrow 
they will make you think i bet they will thank you very much and now said mrs porter switching the conversation to the gaping george you had better put this man to bed george pennicut's opinion of mrs porter to which he was destined to adhere on closer acquaintance may be recorded what a hoffle woman sir he whispered as kirk bore him off nonsense george said kirk one of the most entertaining ladies i have ever met already i love her like a son but how she escaped from bloomingdale beats me there's been carelessness somewhere the bedrooms attached to the studio opened off the galley that ran the length of the east wall looking over the edge of the galley before coming downstairs kirk perceived his visitor engaged in a tour of the studio at that moment she was examining his masterpiece ariadne in naxos he had called it that because that was what it had turned into at the beginning he had had no definite opinion as to its identity it was rather a habit with his pictures to start out in a vague spirit of adventure and receive their label on completion he had an airy and dashing way in his dealings with the goddess art nonetheless he had sufficient of the artist's soul to resent the fact that mrs porter was standing a great deal too close to the masterpiece to get its full value you want to stand back a little he suggested over the rail mrs porter looked up oh there you are she said yes here i am agreed kirk affably is this yours it is you painted it i did it is poor it shows a certain feeling for colour but the drawing is weak said mrs porter for this wonderful woman was as competent at art criticism as at automobile driving and first aid where did you study in paris if you could call it studying i am afraid i was not the model pupil kind of come down you're giving me a crick in the neck kirk descended he found mrs porter still regarding the masterpiece with an unfavourable eye yes she said the drawing is decidedly weak i shouldn't wonder assented kirk the dealers to whom i've tried to sell it have not said that in so many words but they've all begged me with tears in their eyes to take the darn thing away so i guess you're right do you depend for a living on the sale of your pictures thank heaven no i'm the only artist in captivity with a private income a large income tis not so deep as a well nor so wide as a church door but tis enough twill serve all told about five thousand iron men per annum iron men bones bones i should have said dollars you should i detest slang sorry said kirk mrs porter resumed her tour of the studio she was interrupted by the arrival of the doctor a cheerful little old man with the bearing of one sure of his welcome he was an old friend of kirk's well what's the trouble i couldn't come sooner i was visiting a case i work there is no trouble said mrs porter the doctor spun round startled in the dimness of the studio he had not perceived her mr winfield's servant has injured his knee very superficially there is practically nothing wrong with him i have made a thorough examination the doctor looked from one to the other is the case in other hands he asked you bet it isn't said kirk mrs porter just looked in for a family chat and a glimpse of my pictures you'll find george in bed first door on the left upstairs and a very remarkable sight he is he is wearing red hair with purple pyjamas why go abroad when you have not yet seen the wonders of your native land that night laura delane porter wrote in the diary which with that magnificent freedom from human weakness that marked every aspect of her life 
she kept all the year round instead of only during the first week in January this is what she wrote worked steadily on my book it progresses in the afternoon had an annoying occurrence an imbecile with red hair placed himself in front of my automobile fortunately without serious injury to the machine though the sudden application of the brake cannot be good for the tyres out of evil however came good for I made the acquaintance of his employer a Mr. Winfield an artist Mr. Winfield is a man of remarkable physique I questioned him narrowly and he appears thoroughly sound as to his mental attainments I cannot speak so highly but all men are fools and Mr. Winfield is no more so than most I have decided that he shall marry my dear Ruth they will make a magnificent pair End of chapter 1 A Pawn of Fate Read by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org